0: Would you pray with me? Gracious God, cause your light to shine forth that it might illumine our hearts and that we might be filled with joy. In the name of your Son. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the fact that when we read Scripture at Bread of Life, when we read to the Gospel reading, the Gospel comes down and stands in the middle. It's a very ancient practice. It's a reminder that the gospel belongs to the people, but it's also a guide to remind us that all of Scripture comes to its expression and its clarity of interpretation when seen in light of Jesus. And the gospel passage this morning is a unique gospel passage. John's John's gospel has been described sometimes as the pearl among the gospels because it speaks in a spiritual way of Jesus, the way that the other gospels approach, but don't speak with the same level of clarity, with the same voice. But the prologue of John, this opening verses, are a kind of special passage within the Gospel of John that make it very difficult to comment upon. These are words to put into memory, to recite in our dark moments of confusion and disorientation. Augustine And Chrysostom both said, these are words that could not have been written by a human. Perhaps a little bit of hyperbole. But the point is there. What can be said more than this? In the beginning was the Word. All I can do with you for a few minutes is reflect on what these these words say to us a little bit about God and about us. They are the words of worship of one of the earliest Christian communities. This is a hymn of praise to the word, the word which was God. It's an interesting thing to think about how it would have originated. How would we have a passage that speaks this way of Jesus as the word of God? Almost certainly it arose within that mix of prophecy and worship that the early church gave in which the early church gave expression to its deep convictions. In Luke 24, at the end of the Gospel, Jesus has risen from the dead and He is there with his, the Apostles and, he said, and it says that He opened the mind of the Apostles to understand the Scriptures. And so they begin to tell His story in light of those Scriptures. And that story is summarized in verse 14 of our passage. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, this Greek word logos that's used here of Jesus is an interesting and provocative and heretofore unused point of contact for Jesus' expression of who Jesus is. There's access in the Greek and Jewish word, worlds to this idea. In the Greek world, the logos, the ordering principle of creation of the world, is something that Greek philosophical mind aspired to connect to. In the Jewish world also, the Word of God has power. And at the time of the early church, there is already in Jewish life a kind of substantization of the Word. You can think of Proverbs 8 with wisdom, Lady Wisdom who says, I was with the Lord at the beginning of creation. In the beginning, this begins, was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Do you hear that there's an ontological claim here? Something is being said about the Word which hadn't been said with clarity until this point that he was at the very beginning already, pre-existing. John the Baptist says this in the later interruptions, the several times when John interrupts the prologue, he was before me. This is like Paul's hymn, also a hymn in Philippians 2, Christ who was in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. So, there's a claim about who Jesus is, co equal with the Father, as our creed will say. But there's also a claim about the resumption of God's good intention to be with his people. In the beginning is how it begins, and a beginning implies that there's a story that is going forward. God is doing something, what comes next is a narrative. God's desire to be with his creation is coming to expression. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He crosses the divine human barrier of spirit and natural created world, flesh. In Luke 24, when Jesus appears to his disciples, they think he is a spirit, a ghost. And he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I do. I, the resurrected Christ, now, still have flesh and bones, still holding on to your humanity. It is forever with him. And this is a claim against the kind of vague supernaturalism that would easily take Christianity with under its wing and say, yes, here's a nice expression of the thing that we already believe, that God might be manifest in all sorts of ways, just like he was in Jesus. The Christian claim here is that the one and only God took on human flesh in a particular place, in a particular time, with particular witnesses to that event, identifying and involving Himself definitively in history and humanity in a very particular way. He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. This phrase, dwelt, and the, the, the Greek word here used is skenao, which means to, to make a tent, sometimes to tabernacle. It's a word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the tabernacle that Israel carried around, that was the place where God's Spirit was dwelling. When he came to dwell among us, he comes to dwell, resuming that, that divine intention to be among his people. And this word skene also, it's, it's one of those weird places where Greek and Hebrew, the words actually come close to their meaning. Shekan is to dwell in Hebrew. I think I'm getting that right. The Shekinah, glory of God, is dwelling here in the person of Jesus Christ. And to push the alliteration or the, the verbal connection even more, he has taken on skin, our skin. He wears our skin both in his humiliated state and in his glorified state, which I think means that we must reconsider our own skin, ourselves. What do these words mean for our view of our created identity? If Jesus now wears our skin, has become human, and has always existed with and as God, as the prologue here says, then it follows that humanity was created with his incarnation in view. Jesus' incarnation is not an afterthought, but the presupposition to the making of the world. In verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. This world is made for Jesus and through Jesus. Jesus. Rather than simply conforming Jesus to our image, the Incarnation shows us that the meaning of our humanity is to be conformed to the image of God, which comes to expression definitively for us in Christ. And this is not just a claim about Christians, but a hegemonic Christian claim about all creation. Every human being we encounter, says John, is in the image of the One who became flesh. Do you see how this intensifies our call to love our neighbor? You never set eyes upon a human being who is not made in the image of the one who took on flesh for your redemption and salvation. Therefore, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. Paul says something similar in Colossians 1. Also, a hymn expressing praise to God. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, do you hear the echo, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might, have, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it goes on beautifully. But all of this means that the pre-existing inner relation of each person to Christ by virtue of creation is there. Those are sentences too much to say. Let's try that again. Within each of us, there is pre-existing a relationship to the incarnate Christ through whom we have been made. Listen to verses 4 and 9. In him the light was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The principle of understanding, of being able to perceive the world of knowing what we know, whether or not we are people who are in Christ, comes from Him, from the Logos, from the Word. And this illumination is obscured for all of us and darkened by sin. But the inner mechanics of the human person are wired by God. Not just our knowledge, but our intuitions and desires to be seen by God, to, be know, to know Him. These are written into us. We did not choose them. And this means that coming to trust in Jesus as the way to God is not like meeting a foreign person with claims upon us that we do not recognize, that don't suit us. Instead, it is like coming home to a relationship with a parent for which we are designed. Augustine's famous prayer says this memorably Oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Salvation is coming home. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God children, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The sense of oneself as a child of God is not an experience one enters automatically or without complication. I think we all know that there are rival ways of relating to parents. There are those who are our blood, who have made us theirs not by love, but by the will of the flesh, by very human limitations. This is the realm in which we often experience our relationship to our father or mother. Of these kinds of relationships, John is aware, and he contrasts them to being a child of God, which he calls a right to those who have believed in him. A right to become children of God. Paul makes the same point in our Galatians reading. The coming of Christ and the consequent union of the believer with Christ by faith has brought about the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless the whole world in his offspring, who is Christ. And therefore, believers of all backgrounds have a claim to be heirs of God's promise, God's desire to bless his creation, to make full in their experience of him his heirs, his children. I think we need to be honest that this is an identity that we have to fight for. There are voices in the world around us, often within us, that will tell us that we need to find our identity somewhere else. In our education, our work, especially as it is recognized by others. Your relationship status, our sexual identity, our politics, our hobbies, our own self-determined values. To know oneself as a child of God is the great Christian calling, but it requires a baptism and catechizing of our imaginations, because our imaginations are subject to so many other voices. And this is why we need to have the truth of God traced over and again in our hearts. It is why each of us probably should take our gospel passage and commit it to memory, We're not called to an endless striving in this direction in our own strength. The message of Christmas is that God has come near to make himself known, that he is not far off. He is available, especially in the life of his family. One doesn't come to know oneself part of a natural family except in the experience of that family, do you? You don't come to know that you are a child of a parent except the love of that parent is present. You don't come to know your place of belonging except you realize that you have siblings. Unless you share at a common table at some point, you don't really feel at home. It's been said that we cannot have really know God as our father without knowing the church and all her failures as our mother or without knowing our brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. This is how, as children, we learn our place in the spiritual family of God, around a common table. And this is interestingly embedded in here. It's not as explicit as I hope to make it here. The testimony of John that the early church experienced a radical experience of belonging, of coming home to a true identity to God in Christ in their relationship to one another. Listen to the first person plural involved in this statement. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not just there in Palestine. He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, And he goes on, and from his fullness, we have all received, and grace upon grace. Do you hear that claim from the community about what we have experienced? We have all received, grace upon grace. Can you imagine what depths of goodness might be hidden beneath these words? What did this mean in the lives of those who, when they put this into expression, in the early church found it necessary to say we have all received from His fullness and not just once but grace upon grace. What possibilities for you and for me remain unexplored or untrusted or unhoped for? I trust that you might be here because you have experienced a measure of God's grace but what might we still experience if we were to come with open hands and ask from the one who assures us that as a good father, he is ready to give to those who ask, ready to give good things because we are his children. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. From the bosom of the Father, the heart of God, the Son of God has come to make God known not principally as an object of intellectual knowledge, but as a person, as a father. And to us, who are still very much busy with finding ourselves, he comes to tell us, to show us, and to usher us into the reality that we are his. Amen.